Hello, my name is Jason Reichel, and you're listening to Risk Management Brick by Brick. I'm fascinated with people who are helping build and maintain the physical world around us. On each episode of this podcast, we'll dive in with a risk manager, speak to them about how technology plays a role in this process. Welcome to Brick by Brick with Jason Reichel. Joining me today from ITC 2023 is Tim Hardcastle, CEO and co-founder of Astanda, which is aids in designing and distributing and managing insurance products worldwide. Very cool company doing very innovative things with brokers and carriers and all over the stuff. He's a pioneer in this field and I really enjoyed this conversation. Let's get to it. Hey, thank you so much for joining me at ITC. I'm really excited to be speaking with you. Why don't you give me a little bit of background about your role and how you ended up at ITC and what do you want to get out of this whole event? This is the part that ITC pays us to do, which is mention ITC and why you're here. Okay, why am I here? Well, ITC is the biggest event on the planet to bring together insurance companies, software companies, media. And so I think it's an event that is not a, you can't miss it, right? And uh, we've been coming here for several years and I think this year looks bigger and better than any year I've seen it. How do you measure a successful ITC? Well, there's some uh, there's some stats. Obviously, as any sensible company would, we you know we spend quite a bit of money coming here, and therefore you know in any uh, situation like that, you have to run the the rule over it, right? We track contact points, conversations that we have with clients, leads, connections we might make with partners, and we look at that in the round. And so there's a there's a metrics based view that we take. And then of course, there's a qualitative side around, you know, what was the experience like? Was it good for us to be connecting with some new prospects and clients? So we take the, both the quants and the qualitative and make a view about how that's been good for us. And what's happened in the last five years since we've been coming is that we progressively just try to take a bigger bite out of what's here at ITC. And what we mean by that is we've been showcasing what we're about as a software company. More prominently, you probably would have seen our name on the registration desks. That's a big step forward for us because, you know, our confidence around the value of what we get from ITC has grown. And as our company has grown and our presence in the US market has grown, it's natural that we should take a bigger footprint here in ITC and and welcome in people that haven't heard about us. So they can get a chance to talk to our team and, uh, and obviously celebrate the so success. So what's going on for you with you guys this year? Like what what's new? What are you excited about? Well, one particular thing that we announced just before the start of ITC was we announced a partnership with Verisk. We've connected with their rating as a service. They call it a RAS for commercial lines with one of our clients. And I think they are very excited about that because arguably Verisk are trying to move their business model into a, a kind of more cloud frictionless type of interaction. Yeah. Whereas as we know, historically, ISO and, and you know that kind of engagement model is quite intense, labor intensive. So anything that makes it easier for MGAs and risk managers to find an easier way to get uh, admitted lines business undertaken, uh, which is what we've done with connecting with their RAS, it's a good statement of intent of where the future of choice is for the companies that we work with. Yeah. Let's talk about you. How did you end up in this role? How long have you got? <laughs> I'll give you the short version, right? My wife is a child psychotherapist, so I guess she would put me on a spectrum end of things because I think any person that started a company has to be a little bit, you know, non-rational to do it. Uh, so I put myself in that category. But no, I've got a, a long journey of getting here, and I think that gives me and the company, you know, a lot of benefits. So, for example, I wasn't joining insurance from a graduate as a, I was headhunted into insurance, and I became a technology leader in a 
big insurance company that had operations in the US and UK and Europe, uh, and Bermuda, a reinsurance um, part to the business. And then when my corporate career kind of reached a point where I was feeling the urge to go and try something new, and that was fueled by my experience in that insurance company, that was the genesis of Instanda, which is what we created, I created with my co-founder. And we set this business up, and it's very special in that it was attempting at the start and is now doing something that just didn't exist, which was... How do you take all the complexity of insurance, which is, it's complex, very diverse, uh, and allow that complexity and diversity to be simplified and put it into something, and then you put it into the hands of the people that are running the businesses. And we could talk a bit about it later around, you know, how the risk managers get the most of technology. And we are very much part of that. And that was a big challenge point for us. It was the big pain point for the industry. How do you move? at speed and be agile and be flexible and enjoy, I mean, I repeat this word, enjoy being uh, different and personalized to your marketplace and be able to put propositions out that are really going to resonate with your customers. And that is not a joyful experience for most insurance companies or MGAs. One thing you said, so over the last five years, how have you seen the industry shift around technology? If we think about InsureTech as a term, it actually wasn't officially almost in any uh, everyday conversation. It didn't right. exist until around about four or five years ago. And I think it was this wave of change and to some extent overhype of the fact that some modern technology would allow the insurance industry to be just be more agile, to be more agile, to do different things. And so we were part of that. I mean, our business was formed prior to the InsureTech wave, if you like, but we were caught up in it. And I think that it's been a really good thing for the insurance industry because technology has moved on rapidly in the last five years. And it's rightful that boards of big companies should have expectations that over time, technology costs should go down. Technology should be easier to work with. It should simplify my business and it should allow me to get propositions out to my customers that they really want, right? That has not been the case for insurance for the last 20 years. Well, when I first came into this industry from just Silicon Valley, being a tech guy, and I consulted with a lot of SaaS organizations and helped manage those companies. One thing that Silicon Valley was guilty of, technology companies were guilty of, is not playing well with industry, but saying, we're going to come in and disrupt this. What you're doing is stupid. This doesn't make any yeah. sense. And at TrustLayer, what we've tried to do is take a partnership aspect of it and be more of a tool-based company who's helping elevate what already exists. And I'm finding that to be a theme among the technology companies who are being successful in, you know, riding past the insure tech wave, like how you had MarTech yeah. and all these other kind of yeah. things that those are not terms, they're not 50 of these companies anymore, there's 10. So from your perspective, what does it mean to work within the industry as a technology partner? Well, I think that's a really good point you make because our thesis was when we started out was that because of the complexity and diversity of insurance, that's one challenge point to solve to, right? From a technology standpoint. The second challenge point was to solve to it was building up loyal brands with customers is a long, expensive, uh, you know, you're digging that mine for a long time to try and get that connection. And we did not, I did not take the view that there would be um, at scale, the ability for a new entrant to come in build that brand, generate customer loyalty, on the, certainly on the direct-to-consumer market. That was my philosophical view. I mean, uh, it's a business economics-based view as well. And I think we've seen that play out with a number of the so-called disruptors where the market sentiment is not great. I mean, if you look at, probably I wouldn't name them, but the obvious ones, you know, their valuations have gone down. And I think people are genuinely questioning 
the long-term viability of a new entrant coming in and taking up significant market share, yeah. the direct-to-consumer businesses. So we were always of the view, like any industry, our belief was that the incumbents are the ones that are going to be successfully building and growing their business. And now there's still a conditional point around those incumbents, which is, are they prepared to embrace new ways of working, to be adaptive, to allow them to be better partners or better providers to their customers, right? And so we took the view that our job was to create this technology that was flexible and easy to use and put it in the hands of the industry and let the industry drive the value of that into their marketplace. And so our thesis was to enable better insurance products to get to market, to enable pricing changes to be made every hour, every minute, if that's what's going to work. That's our job from a software perspective. And so I'm a big advocate and fan of software that allows, like you said, better experiences, faster go to market and so on. And and across the entire insurance value chain. So I was a very much of a big fan and advocate of that. I was a naysayer, if you like, when there was a lot of hype around some of these companies coming in to so-called disrupt the incumbents. Now, we, it's not to say that we won't see further disruption, but it will come, I think, from the incumbents themselves. I don't think there'll be a, a new entrant because, you know, look at the market, you need balance sheet, you need to be able to comply with all the regulations, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and to be a, a new company, new software company emerging now with the VC industry where it's at is, now, it would be very some difficult. Some people are pointing at other companies that are outside, say the US and Europe, where like, for example, Pingang in Asia, which is actually uh, generating a different kind of insurance model. They are an insurance company themselves, but they have a bunch of engineering, software engineering capability at a scale that the average large carrier doesn't have. But then in Europe, certainly, you have customer regulation issues around data and how you manage that, and you can't share it across easily, which is not quite the case in, in Ping An's market. So I think the incumbents, those players at scale that leverage technology for real competitive advantage will be the winners in the, in the medium term. One thing that we keep hearing, especially ITC, because it's more of a technology-focused conference, is the amount of data because of AI sensors, we were just talking about it in the last one, but just in the hallways talking about this too. And then talking about micro, micro insurance coming up for very specific niche things, which yeah. you saw in technology 10 years ago, the right. niching of technology yeah. to do single serving things. The economy got bad in technology yeah. and then we went back to platforms. What lessons do you think the insurance industry needs to learn from those niching and then broadening back up. What's your predictions that you might have for the industry around new services and new products? Yeah, I think that's a really great point. I mean, I was talking about what I would call mass customization like five or seven years ago. And you've seen that in other industries, the car industry, for example, you look at the way in which they actually are able to create personalized products for you, but the, the chassis, the components yes. are reusable, and then you personalize the edge part of the experience. And I think for insurance, given that it is until the point of claim, a non-physical product, everything is digital, then why is it the case that it's so much uh, of a challenge to many insurance companies to personalize this digital product, right? Why is that a challenge? And I would go to the point that many of them have been working on, you know, they've been hamstrung by processes and certainly technology that has not allowed them to be, as you say, really niche personalized and go deep on some micro space. And if the unit economics allows them to do that, which with our platform it does, and there are some others out there, then that should be a, a huge growth opportunity. I mean, you can talk about um, SME or SMC, 
um, and other niches where, you know, you've got your small companies of plumbers, electricians, and so on, provide them with a comprehensive package. And you can drive that in a retail-like manner as well. When you combine it with retail data, real-time data, you can actually start to change your pricing, your product placement, and so on. It's, it's a great opportunity. I'm really excited by it, but for some, I know the reasons, but uh, you know, some of the carriers haven't taken full advantage of that yet. And I believe you're right, they should. So one of the things we were talking about is dynamic pricing. We're talking about how we think niches are gonna show up and be able to be the winners and incumbents are, are actually creating these niche parts of their business. In insurance, there is a middleman in that, which is brokerages. What's the future of brokerages look like when technology is delivering pricing and delivering things direct to business and consumer, what happens? Is it just, they're gonna have to find another way to add value to their customers? What's the solution or what are your guesses that the industry is going to have to address? Well, when you look at the data of how is insurance distributed on a global basis, direct to consumer, actually um, insurance growth has actually stagnated in the last seven or eight years. And even as we speak today, globally, we're talking less than 15% globally is direct to consumer from an insurance perspective, right? So there is going to be um, some progression around direct to consumer. And it makes sense when you've got products that can be fully digitized, it's a self-service model and consumers can take advantage of that. I think ultimately you have to recognize that that is the way it should go because it's a form of frictionless insurance that consumers just want. But the world of insurance is this wonderful, wonderful, diverse place, right? And there is a bunch of coverage and types of insurance that just don't fall into this kind of like vanilla, fairly easily defined package. And that's why I'm a big advocate for there needs to be an intermediary. There needs to be a broker that knows their, their customers really well and then can assist and enable the creation of quite personalized products backed up by some technology, of course, and those personalized products can be delivered to the customer in the way that the customer wants. I think what will happen is over time, what we would like to see is the brokers being increasingly sophisticated in the kind of advice, moving not just from here's your product, but leading into some of the preventative advice that the customers would expect. And some of the big brokers like Aon and so on, they, they are very closely attuned to their big clients on a global basis. If they're insuring large books of, you know, uh, manufacturing premises, that is never going to be solved to through purely through insurance. There's going to be a whole range of things that need to come together to make that engagement and that proposition meaningful. And Aon does a great job of it. Willis Towers Watson, you know, there's a lot, of, there's a bunch of other brokers at scale that do that. And then at the local level in uh, the UK, for example, there's a brokerage relationship, which is directed at the farming community. And the loyalty that they build with their customers, I talked earlier about brand loyalty. The loyalty is one of the highest levels of loyalty because a farmer, for example, has a mini commercial combined insurance requirement. It covers, you know, combines, tractors, you know, it, they could have a side business selling ice cream, etc. This is a great example of a personalized, relatively complex insurance package that technology can help, but ultimately it's got to be a broker conversation because that's the distribution layer is the thing that allows it to be presented simply absolutely right i think what will happen is the simplified insurance will progressively be automated self-served and consumed that way notwithstanding that it's been slow growth on direct to consumer and then the broker is going to be playing on you know for a long time yet the very meaningful role it plays the brokerage community i think there's games that some of the software companies play however 
where they like to double take. They charge the broker for something and then they'll charge the carrier for the distribution rights. But that's a game that's been played for a while and you know, we'll see how that lands in the end. One thing we were also talking about is the technology landscape, modern technology, how the industry's shifting. And at the heart of a lot of these organizations is still really archaic yeah. infrastructure. What do we do about an industry that has been built on archaic infrastructure that is hard to operate or only specific knowledge sets exist? How do we move away from that? Or how do we understand that and de-risk that so that our industry can continue to grow? I would bifurcate uh, the two types of core technologies that a lot of insurance companies are on. There's the technology that was maybe even constructed or built 30, 40 years ago. And there's a few people that still know how to run those systems, right? I actually had that experience myself as a CIO. I, it was, his name was actually Bob. And when Bob went on holiday, nothing happened, right? We yeah. couldn't get anything done. And it was, and then Bob was, you know, the bottleneck for some changes that need to be made for those kind of technologies. So over time, you know, my strategy was to find a way to replace the system on which Bob was the only one that knew how to run, right? So yeah. there's these older systems where you have bottlenecks created with people who know them and the, those people are getting close to retirement or you need to figure out a solution. Yeah. And then you have the other ones where they've taken multiple, multiple years to implement a so-called core system that is modern, but it's not really. Uh, and they're into five, eight year programs of implementation. They've spent tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars on those things. They're not going to take those out tomorrow or anytime soon. Now, the question then is with that category, how do you work well with those platforms and still then bring in some uh, innovation and uh, creativity? And the way that we're talking about it, I think others are as well, is you have this concept of, we call it a, a core, non-core. So you have like your motor in your home and you know, your big, heavy revenue-based products on your core. You accept that core does those things well, but that core can't work into whether it's the niches that you talked about earlier or the growth engines or the, the new products you want to be testing. And so there's a non-core element, the, the things that aren't as big and as valuable as the... So a CIO and organization yeah, should, exactly. should and then classify you, what's core and what's right. not core. Exactly. And then you take your non-core and you put it onto a modern platform like ours. And then what you do is you look at that over a three, four, five year period. You start to see what the unit economics are for that Thing. You then stress test it against your uh, core, and then you start to play out a five to 10 year strategy where you say, hey, if this non-core stuff, which is growing at a much higher rate and my unit economics are attractive and that company is doing a great job, then over a five to 10 year period, I'm going to just start biting off more and more slices of that core stuff and moving into what was my non-core so that over a 10 year period, I'm flipping it. That's what I would do. One thing, you know, we do a lot of work in the construction. So trust layer tool, COI, digital risk transfer, right? Very prevalent in construction. But the requirements that you pass down to your subcontractors are almost dumb as a rock. They're yeah. just boilerplate and don't really change that much based on what the people are doing. You might have risk plan A, B, and C. Okay, that person's doing plumbing work on the first floor. They don't need to have. Yeah. But we don't talk about the wasted cost of insurance when we don't look at the specifics of what jobs are doing. And my hope is that technology comes in and is able to say, no, this is specifically what this, per this company would need in order to do the work. So thus driving profitability of insurance and profitability of the organizations who are you know, using subcontractors, so to speak. Well, I think and in construction, it's really fascinating because 
you know, the insurance products given to the prime contractor, right? The provider of the construction project. And yet it's a challenge to then decide or understand which subcontractors that prime contractor is using, right? And yeah. then within those subcontractors, what activity they're carrying out. I mean, different types of welding, for example, will have different types of impacts on the risk of that weld, right? And in terms of fire or hazard or whatever. And so the challenge for the, that particular segment is how do you track, because there's daily movement and hourly movement at times of assets and people. And yet you're right, we're able to, I mean, uh, I have some experience from example, from prior to when I um, worked in insurance, I was working in logistics with a company related to McDonald's and they were able to predict down to the minute what demand was required in a whole network of restaurants and like they would even be able to determine if there was a football match on in a particular city or sorry, I think you call it soccer, right? <laughs> this is in Europe. I was lost. I had no idea what you're not. <laughs> that they were able to predict what the demand was going to be for the product in the restaurant stores. And so, and then they were able to track each individual product coming to the restaurant from leaving the food supply chain. So, so there are technology ways to track and manage you know, movement of people and assets very easily, and yet they haven't been deployed fully and then connected back to the risk assessment and the risk management. And that's the exciting opportunity in my mind. But we've set ourselves up as a platform to connect into any IoT device, anything that could be used. I mean, well, you can use it, Apple AirTags, right, <laughs> to, tra to track individual items, whatever it be. I'm not the kind of expertise that would know how to do that in a construction project workplace. but. Like you say, I'm full of optimism that is entirely doable for the construction sector, right? To bridge that gap. And then imagine the kind of conversations you could have from a risk management perspective and how precise you could get with the pricing of the risk for that project. It would be incredible. One question I want to ask you, and this might be a little bit of a controversial question, yeah. which is, so we have this idea around a modern risk manager who views managing their vendors as a core element of value differentiation right. and all this. When you look at what customers have been successful with your product and which ones haven't, what are the attributes of a successful customer for you? And how can more companies become that? That's a great question. I'd like to caveat it just a little bit because yeah. my answer is going to be skewed and it's skewed in a good way. So the caveat is the companies that tend to approach us or want to work with us are in general very progressive. They have determined they have a digital strategy. They have determined that, um, and it could be some of the larger companies we work with, that their current model is not sufficient for the future. I mean, there's one large company that we work with. They have a three to $4 billion book on motor and home. They look at the statistics of where that book is going to grow to, even with their best efforts. And they think they're going to get maybe a five to 8% compound growth on that, which is pretty good. But they don't think that's sufficient for them to be satisfying their shareholders. So they set up a completely new entity alongside it to say, this is going to be purely digital. We're not using the kind of mothership. The infrastructure we have. The infrastructure we have. We're going to do a different model. And so they've come out with that kind of as an alternative. And so they've made a very clear strategic choice around the direction they want to travel in, right? At the other end of the spectrum, some of the clients that we work with, they're smaller MGAs specializing in some of the non-admitted space, particularly commercial lines. And they, again, have seen the niche that you talk about um, and they know, and they often start with quite a aggressive view on the costs of what they want to be paying for, for technology. And that then immediately removes about 95% of the technology marketplace because they're often older platforms that are very expensive and inflexible. So there's only a small number that can compete that. So I think one of the, the caveat I'm talking about is the companies are generally 
that come to us are really clear on where they want to be, whether they're an MGA or a larger carrier. So that means that we get to see, I think, the best of insurance because we're dealing with uh, you know, the most progressive because they've got a clear statement of intent. Yeah, your, your value prop of the product yeah. speaks to no, innovation. I, I, will, I, you know, I mean, my PR people probably wouldn't be happy about this, but uh, you know, I'll go on record. We have not delivered all of our projects successfully. We've had two failures in my entire time as CEO, right? And those failures, I'm sure we could have done some things better, but at the heart of it, it was a cultural change challenge with the underwriters, the risk managers, had a way of working, the top executive would want them to change and be more progressive and they would try to take a direction. And the underwriters just fought it tooth and nail. And that cultural behavioral change, you can't implement a digital strategy unless the people, you need a lot of executive sponsorship to, to do it. And then you need the people as part of the teams to be engaged. And when they're not engaging, there needs to be a combination of a carrot and stick, right? To help them do that. And that's not always the case. Executives are busy. They don't always give them the carrot and stick at the same time. Um, and so we, you know, we've had a couple of projects that have not gone well because of that. Now, the joy is that we've had, you know, tens and tens and tens of probably about well over a hundred projects now in the last few years where they've all been really successful and the attributes of you asked for was very clear intended companies. But the thing to still to change is that behavioral component. And that's not a technology issue. That's a, just a pure God, you know, old traditional change management issue. I mean, at the heart of it, that's always the problem with the organizations. A modern organization wants to embrace technology process, whatever it might be, actual, what we call tech, in order to enhance what they're able to deliver to right. their customers. But you have a lot of, uh, this is a podcast for risk managers. I have a lot of traditional risk managers who I've reached out to for interviews and they don't have clear processes. They have what they've always done in the past to solve their problems. And you know, one of the big things that people are talking about is, oh, there's a gap in talent in risk management or coming into organizations. And I feel like we have to have more organizations be forward thinking and really lean in. And maybe technology is inevitable. Maybe we're going to be at a push where it's either you get on board and right. you innovate or you stagnate. I, you know, it hasn't happened yet in the insurance. Yeah. I've seen it happen in other industries where either right. you innovate or, you, or you're gone, but it hasn't happened in the insurance industry overall yet. Would you agree or do you disagree? I am of the view that in the medium to long term, as I said earlier on, those companies that are more progressive and more adaptive will be the winners and the ones that are more resistant to change and just thinking this thing is just going to run and run and run will be ultimately the returns to their shareholders will will decline their businesses will be their lunch will be taken by other competitors so the interesting um, thing for insurance is it's one of the most resilient industries out there if you look at some of the crises we've had in the last 10 or 15 years insurance has actually withstood the banking crisis you know there's only one company that went down which was aig and that was because it was doing some slightly odd things financially so insurance has been a very resilient industry even in the era of low interest rates that we've just now coming out of right when you'd argue that they weren't returning their cost of capital because they weren't getting the investment returns they still managed to do decent things but i think over the next 10 or 15 years there will be this inexorable drive towards the people that are not adaptive will start to be flushed out more than they have been in the last 10 years that we've just seen notwithstanding the, the resilience point i'm making and so i think the challenge for the industry is there's still a bunch of companies that are feeling that what they do today is good enough 
what I would say is we're seeing a little bit of the tide turning because, I mean, for example, just to blow our own trumpet just briefly, we've just been chosen by one of the world's biggest insurers to go to market. Uh, it's not a huge deal for them. It's about a billion in premium. Um, they're going to be using our platform and they've, they've just looked at the big industry giant alternative technology companies and said, too expensive, too inflexible. Too much risk. Too much. Well, well, you can debate that point because boards are inherently risk averse and they like to be able to feel that they can choose technology partners that are going to be there in the next five or 10 years yeah. that other companies have chosen and that no one on the board is going to get fired for choosing that particular company. It used to be the phrase, no one got fired for choosing IBM. That's obviously we've moved on a lot from that now. Anyway, they've chosen us. And I think whilst it's only one example, I think when you get a sentiment change like that at that size of company at the board level, you kind of get a, you know, a renewed sense of hope and optimism that the industry is really wanting to get a hold of itself and say, we need tools, technology tools. We're one of a number they're using to be more flexible, to be more progressive. And so whilst the industry has been resilient and therefore there has been swathes within companies that are not adaptive to change because why do I need to? I think we see some of these bigger companies coming we're out. We're seeing a similar thing for people out That's there. That's my prediction. In the next 10 years, is going to be the bigger change. For us, we're working on real-time validation of insurance. Right. So you don't need COIs. You don't need these tools that are archaic, you can instead go onto a job site, scan your badge, it knows if you have the insurance, you can walk on. And two years ago, three years ago, we'd be talking to the industry leaders, and they'd be like, this is cool, but there's no way we're gonna bridge that gap. And now they're in rooms figuring out how they're gonna bridge that gap, right? And, and I do see that self-correction of the industry, of innovation, and my hope is that it attracts a lot more talent into the insurance well, I think industry. That's a great point. I think, I think the talent needs to come into the industry and therefore you need to have at the disposal of that talent, modern technology that allows them to be more progressive with their thinking. And I, I was having this debate with a group of actuaries just recently, and they are some of the younger elements of uh, joining the actuarial profession are thinking of themselves as more like data scientists than actuaries. Right, because the tooling that is available for data analysis and insights, you know, we uh, you haven't mentioned generative AI yet, yeah. which I'm quite pleased. But uh, you know, you, there are some tool sets out there that can run over these very big data pools and allow you to get much deeper insights on the risk profiling. And then, to your point, you combine it with some of the technology that is just so attractive from a cost and utility perspective, whether it's the badge that tells you that's insured, there's a whole number of examples. You start to bring these things together, uh, the data analytics and the insights with the technology that's available, and it's inexorable. There's going to be shifts in what you can do with your risk analysis and your risk pricing. And the younger people that are coming into the industry, that's exactly what they want to be involved in. It's exciting. It's stimulating. It's going to stretch you intellectually. And I'm a big fan, again, of you know whether it's to AI tools, other tools that we just talked about, it's giving people the ability to move up and apply their intellect in a more sophisticated way than manually writing out a risk because that's the way they've done it for the last 20 years. When someone comes into your organization as a CEO and you are trying to give them advice about how to guide their career, because I, I love asking other CEOs this question, what is the advice, what's your default advice to someone joining your team, say out of college? Well, the way that we address that is that we've built our business culturally and behaviorally in a way that is a true meritocracy. That is not something you can say about every company. 
Uh, right. So it doesn't matter if your background, doesn't matter, you know, where you've come from. We embrace people to have, you know, a mindset that is asking questions, challenging, thinking about what our clients' interests are. And so when we're like many companies, we're trying to fight and maneuver ourselves to be winners in this talent war. And the way that you do that is your proposition that you're offering, the opportunity you offer to people that join companies like ours is a progression that is not limited by any glass ceilings or any structure. It's, it's a true meritocracy and the environment is stimulating and therefore you can stretch your intellect and your capabilities. And people love that. We haven't mentioned AI, but this is where I'll mention AI, which is it's an imperative to organizations to make junior resources strategic as fast as possible in a world where the work that junior resources used to do to learn to be strategic is being destroyed. And I think organizations that look at that in that way of like, why wouldn't I want a strategic resource for the next 30 years versus building them for 20 years and getting 10 years of strategy out of this person? I think those are going to be the organizations that win in the talent wars and continue to grow and attract the talent to their organizations. The challenge for many organizations is to how do they continually ask questions of themselves in a deep and meaningful way? And whether you're asking those questions because you're bringing in talent at the beginning of their career and you're giving them the environment where they can ask questions, where they can be, you know, like you say, leveraging parts of technology so that the, they are collectively helping the organization ask itself some deep and insightful questions. You know, we as a business, we set ourselves up very much taking the view that you need to do both. You need to have the outside in perspective. You need to be taking in views from your clients, from your partners, from the analysts, as much as you are inside out, where you're liberating the talent and allowing it, the talent to ask those questions. And that's how we set ourselves up. And no, I mean, as an example, no one asked us when we did all of our research, when we were setting the company up, no one asked us to build a no-code technology platform that could go into Japan, US, UK, and cross all lines of insurance. No one asked us to do that. But that came out of this outside in, inside out, deep and meaningful question, because it was the only way, in our view, that you could solve the pain point around this diversity with insurance and allow insurance carriers, MGAs, to be creative, to be innovative with a technology that gives them the freedom to do that. That was the only way you could solve to it. And so I'm really, really confident that that beginning yes. for us is the same thing that's going to sustain us over the next 5, 10, 20 years. Fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. Risk Management Brick by Brick is brought to you by TrustLayer. Find out how TrustLayer manages risk so that the people can build the physical world around us. Head over to TrustLayer.io. And then make sure to subscribe to Risk Management Brick by Brick on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the TrustLayer team, thank you for listening.